sweet play. It is always good to have the children with us in worship, and it is always nice to see when they leave. You know, kids are great. I, I, I'm glad I'm a parent. Uh, made Yvonne stick around. Uh, but kids bring with them something that is unsettled and uh, loud and sometimes messy, and that's just my children. And I think there's something to have them in our body while we worship, and then occasionally we have family Sundays where they stay in here the whole time. I, I think there's something in their presence with us to remind us that, that worship itself, what we do together as a people of God trying to follow after the leading of our Lord is, is itself a, a messy thing. One of the things I think you might have picked up on in my preaching is that when God gets involved with your life, God has this habit of messing with things. Like God overturns and overthrows. We're going to read about that in just a moment when we get to the text. By the way, we're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 1 if you want to start turning. But that's, that's kind of how God does. God shows up in people's lives that are going along, minding their own business, and, and God upsets the apple cart and overturns things and sends them on pathways they never went and never dreamed about. In fact, I would go so far to say if, if you're living your life just fine and, and God hasn't messed with anything, you, you might want to actually consider how much he's actually involved. You know, we have these stories of people who are going about their life, living the dream, and then all of a sudden they wander into a church and God calls out to them and then their life takes this drastic U-turn, this drastic right turn, and all of a sudden they're packing their bags and heading off across the ocean to be missionaries. It is messy to follow after the living God and, and sometimes our kids remind us of that messiness. They're not in here today and... and and, and that's, that, that might be a good thing for today, not because of the distractions, but because we're going to be talking about a pretty uh, uh, racy passage of Scripture. It's not, it's, not, it's not scandalous when you first read it, but, but it, it, with hints and nuances, it, it gets us there. And we reminded that, that sometimes the Bible isn't a very kid-friendly book. So with, with that, at least as we Westerners conceive childhood, other, other cultures, they're fine with it, but... But we, we, we have this weird notion. So Jeremiah chapter 1, I'm going to begin reading in the fourth verse. It, it's, it's a well-known story of God calling out to a young man. Now the word of the Lord came to me, came to Jeremiah saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to all whom I send you. You shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, put out, then the Lord put out his hand and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I have appointed you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This is the word of God 
for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It starts out simply enough. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you to be a prophet to the nation. The word there, formed, in the Hebrew is the word yatsar. And it actually dates back to, to Genesis chapter 2. You know that story in Genesis 2. God has created the world in Genesis 1 by speaking the words. And then in Genesis 2, the story shifts and changes. And there is a garden that God plants. And God, God reaches down those God-sized hands into the garden. And he starts making a mud man, a Plato man. He forms him, forms the man out of the, the dust of the ground. And I always think of the joy and delight that happens when you pop open a fresh tube of Play-Doh. Now, some of you have, have aged it a little bit, and you might not have forgotten that, that moment, that sound, that smell. When you open the Play-Doh and it's just there at the perfect temperature and you squish it through your fingers and you make a snake because that's the only thing I could ever make out of Play-Doh and it was never a great snake. It was always kind of naughty and wobbly. But that's what you do and it, it's happy and it's fun. That's, that's how I imagine God there in Genesis 2, playing in the mud, delighting at creation. And that's what God says to Jeremiah here in chapter 1, verse 4. God says, before I formed you, before I shaped you, before I, I, with that messy, tactile creativity, before God did any of that, God knew Jeremiah. This is where it gets a little racy. The, the word there for knew, for know, is yada. Don't you say that with me? Yada. Good. This is something we, we try to avoid talking about until the kids get to a certain age. Uh, Yada is, is, a, is a big Hebrew word. For, for us, knowledge, what we think about is often a cognitive act, action. So some of you would know what the square root of 64 is. Some of you would know the preamble of the Constitution. Some of you might even know your Social Security number. You've written it down once or twice. But you also have those actions that you know. You know how to tie your shoe. You know how to get in a car and, and drive home. You know how to arc weld. Maybe, maybe not. Yadah takes those two types of knowledge, that, that cognitive ability and that, that bodily ability, and it throws them together, and it adds a few more meaning. There, there, there's, a few, there's an old joke that said, you know, King David's, all his problems started when he, he knew Bathsheba. That's the, the intimacy that's involved. Head knowledge, cognitive action, bodily knowledge, doing those things, and that intimacy. That is what God calls out to Jeremiah and says, God, I knew you. Before I shaped you in the womb, I knew who you were, both intimately and viscerally and completely. But God isn't done. And in fact, the next statement gets even a little bit more scandalous. For God says, before I, I knew you, when I, before I formed you, before I knew you, I consecrated you. The, the word there is Kadesh, set apart, to make something holy. Before you were born, before I even made you there in your mother's womb, I made you holy. Now, the scandalous part is it's not 
the normal operation that we see things. That's not normally how we go about things in our lives. We, we tell our children that they are sinners so that they will know that. I tell my children that they are sinners a lot because they really are. And we tell them that over and over again. We tell people that because we want them to realize they're a sinner so that they can repent, so they can be changed, so they can be born again, so that God can make them holy. That, that's the pattern we go through in our life. You, you know you're a sinner, and then you, trans, you repent of your sins, and then you confess your sins and repent of them, and you stop doing them, and then you receive the gift of, the, uh, of salvation, and then you receive the gift of sanctification and become holy and consecrated for God. That's the, the ordo salutis, is the, the Latin, the order of salvation, the way things work, we are told. And then God turns it all on his head. And God comes to Jeremiah, and he says, Jeremiah, long before... You knew me. Long before I even formed you in the womb, I knew you and I consecrated you. I made you holy. But still, God is not done with this young man. God says, before all of that, and then I appointed you to be a prophet to the nations. Navi goyim nathan. The verbs here all start getting piled up. Formed, new, consecrated, appointed. And because I know how much you all love when I start talking about Hebraic grammar, they're all in the perfect tense. So in English, we, we, we have past, present, and, and future tense. We, we designate oftentimes when an action started. In Hebrew, when, when they start talking about tenses, when actions is, they're, they're not thinking so much when it started, but when it's finished. So the perfect tense has this idea that's not quite translatable into English. It has an idea of an action that started in the past and then ended in the past. So the perfect uh, there, it, it's past tense, but it's completed, it's done, it's finalized. Get on and get on with your life. God is saying, I already did all of this stuff. And I didn't ask your permission. I didn't consult you. I didn't bring you in on the table. We didn't have a focus group. I did this complete, done, signed, sealed, delivered. And that word lands. Jeremiah was appointed to be a prophet. This isn't the governor appointing a cabinet member. This isn't me appointing a Sunday school superintendent. This is God Almighty, the creator of the world, the one who brought you in and can take you out, appointing you to do a job. It's hard to say no to the king of the universe. And even if you could, even if Jeremiah could say, hold on a second, I, I, I don't want to do that, it's already been done. God has already formed and knew and consecrated and appointed. Kind of like, you know... It's like returning a tattoo. You can try, but it's not going to do much good. Maybe, or maybe it's that we were talking about children a few minutes ago. It's like returning a child. It's hard to do that. Lasers help with both, by the way. Tattoo removal and dealing with children. Free lessons. In, in response to this, these verbs, in response to these action words that God speaks to Jeremiah, these things that have already been done, Jeremiah is diplomatic. He, he kind of points up his hand and says, excuse me, almighty creator of the universe, the one who can snuff out my life and make it to where I've never been before. I, I need to bring up a technicality with you. I don't know how to talk. 
He says, I'm just a boy. I'm just a nobody. You see, Jeremiah doesn't have any credentials. He doesn't have a lot of letters after his name. He doesn't have a lot of pomp and circumstance that attain when he walks. He wasn't a priest like the prophet Isaiah. His dad may have been a priest, we think, but there's no evidence that he even set foot in the temple. Jeremiah didn't have wealth or a name recognition. Amos, the prophet from the north, comes down south, and he carries a lot of wealth with him. Hosea has this powerful story of God getting involved in messing with his life. If you ever want to be thankful for your life, read Hosea. He's not even aided by certain substances like that weird guy Ezekiel. All of these prophets we have in the Old Testament have this thing to prescribe them or, or give them some kind of notoriety or, or somehow set them apart. And Jeremiah has nothing. He's a, he's a nobody. That's what that word there, boy, that child, it's Na'ar. And it's describing how he is nothing. It's kind, of, it's kind of a poetic phrase. I can't be a prophet, Navi, because I'm just a boy, just a Na'ar. God, though, is undeterred. God sees past Jeremiah's obstacles. God sidesteps his excuses and dilemmas. And God reminds Jeremiah five times in this passage of the one fact that we so often forget in these conversations. It's not about us. This, this church that we gather in, this thing that we're doing as a, as a people, this mission that is in front of us, this ministry that weighs upon us, our witnessing to our friends and neighbors, it, all this stuff is, is not about us. It's God's gig. Hear me, you'll go where I send you. You'll speak what I tell you. I am with you. I have put, I have appointed. Five times God returns back to God's self. God always is the active voice. Jeremiah is always the passive one. That's how this works when you come into this family. When, when God claims you and, and names you a new name. I love that opening song. You are who, excuse me, I am who you say I am. It is God who speaks upon us, who delegates to us, who empowers us. And yet so often we try to change that tense. We try to be the ones who, who put our hands to the plow. We try to be the ones who, who jump into the driver's seat. We try to be the ones to do and to act and to accomplish, to make and to change. I have to remind myself sometimes daily that the future of this church is in God's hands. I got to remind myself that, that it is God who is already out there in the wild world of Rollsville, preparing and leading and guiding. God is the one who is already active within this community, bringing about his purposes. It's not you, Jeremiah, God says, it's me. But God, as he is wont to do, he, he takes an extra step. Yes, he, he reminds Jeremiah over and over again that it's not about him, this calling and formation, this consecration, this, this burden, this weight that is placed upon him. It's not about him. Yes, he lets Jeremiah in on this great secret that God has been involved with his life the whole time, even before he was born, even before he was conceived, working and shaking, shaping. But God then goes the extra step. Verse 9, then the Lord 
put out that God-sized hand. That same hand that was in the dust of the dirt of Eden. That same hand that, that, that pulled back the Red Sea for Moses. That same hand that had guided and delivered the people of Israel for years and years and years. That same hand that one day would be pierced by a nail. That same hand that would offer his, his friends a blood and bread. God put out his hand and touched my mouth. God takes that word of the Lord. And he places it upon Jeremiah's mouth. In, in Hebrew, there's this other idea, not just tenses, but, but they do weird things with words. So, so Hebrew is a very big language in that there's a lot of words that are small words, but they have huge, huge meanings. Greek is the opposite. It has a bunch of very long words that have very specific meanings. So like, like, like German, if you ever study that, yeah, I see those rolled eyes. You, so that, that's that. Hebrew is the opposite. It has, has these little words that have giant meanings. And so the, the, the word for word, it's the word dabar. And that word for word is the same word for a thing. So, so there is no distinction between saying a word and doing a thing. Let me, let me give you an example. Back in the Old Testament, we're in the Old Testament this morning, back in Genesis uh, Abram is sitting there, and he's, uh, excuse me, not Abram, Isaac is, is old in age, and, and he has the two sons, uh, Jacob and Esau, and, and Isaac blesses Esau, and he can't bless, excuse me, he blesses Jacob, and then he can't bless uh, uh, Esau, right? You know that story. The, the reason why he can't bless his second son is because in the act of blessing, the thing has already happened. The word is spoken, and the deed is done. They are one in the same. God takes that word not just what is spoken but the very thing itself God's spoken identity and he places it upon Jeremiah's mouth and he says dude how can you be afraid what have you to fear the very word the very thing the very power and essence and holiness of God has been planted upon you and put inside of you the very possession of divinity is now held within your body all of this is going somewhere it has a purpose in in Jeremiah's life and it has a purpose i think in our life it's wonderful that God has been involved since before you were aware of it. God was deep in your history before you were cognitive of God, shaping and forming and loving and knowing and consecrating. It's incredible that God has, has then taken that extra step and, and given us something of His. His very word has been upon you. It's amazing that we, because of God's presence in our lives, because of God's continued gifts upon us, we have nothing, absolutely nothing left to fear. For the Lord promises to deliver, to deliver us. But all of that is, is leading somewhere. In Jeremiah's life, he's leading him to this very specific ministry, this very specific calling of prophecy, to be the, the mouthpiece of God. For us, if I can be so bold, I, I, I think it's a little different. All of us, as I said at the very beginning of the service today, have been called. We have been appointed for ministry, but I don't think we're all appointed to be prophets. 
uh, he, he's retired now, but uh, Dick Gordon used to have a show on uh, uh, WUNC, the public, cha- uh, public radio show here, called The Story, very creatively, The Story with Dick Gordon. And he would find people and he would interview them and kind of, it was kind of like a long form uh, journalism slash kind of interview show. I I used to love it. I I remember one very distinct story he told. Somehow he had gotten connected with a a, a teacher from the inner city of L.A. It's found out this teacher actually did a lot of things. He had a big nonprofit after him, but I didn't know at the time. I remember that this guy, he, he had grown up and, and had started reading Shakespeare at, a, at an early age. At the time, uh, excuse me, he got into teaching and was teaching in middle school and then had some life changes and found himself in, in teaching fifth grade in this inner city school in downtown L.A. And there he had the crazy idea to take those fifth graders and after school start having a a Shakespeare club. It started out small with just a few kids, but he loved Shakespeare. And so they would gather year after year and they would read the plays and they would act out the plays and eventually they started to to actually perform them at, at the end of the year. And over time he watched as this simple thing that he loved started to transform people's lives. I don't know how long it lasted, but I I know at one point he would impact these fifth graders and it would transform the trajectory of their life. There was a statistic that 100% of kids who had went through this program had gotten into college. Uh, A program that they did six years before because of this man's love and dedication, because of his openness and acceptance. Some of the kids he worked with were the only English speakers in their house, and yet they would stay after school week in and week out to read Shakespeare. That was the impact he had. He had a calling, I think. It's easy to see in something like that. He had a calling to not to change the world, not to, not to, to blaze a new trail, but to find something he loved and to show that love to others. Jeremiah has this specific calling from God uh, to to pluck up and to to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. But I think most of us, thank goodness, don't get that kind of specific calling. I think for the large majority of us who are joining us in the service and joining us online tonight, we have a calling kind of like that fifth grade teacher in L.A., to find that thing that we love and to share it. That makes me think of the, the passage from uh, Corinthians 13, where, where Paul is talking to his fledgling congregation. He, he starts to wax poetically about what love looks like. Love is patient and kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for a whole bunch of stuff, prophecy and tongues and all kinds of things and church leadership, they come to an end. But love never does. God's calling for us, beloved, is to have that kind of love. And when you read that, you get the feeling that that God doesn't really care what it is you love. We are to love, be it 
cars or cows or gardening or computers or music or people. Above all else, we are clearly to love the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But our calling is, is to love and to share that love. Our ministry is to open up that love because it is through that love, through the word of God, that word of love placed upon us that the world around us changes lest you slip into those old habits of starting to think that love is something you do. Remember, it's not about you. The love that God's, the love that Paul is singing forth here in Corinthians is the love that God places within us. It is that same gift that Jeremiah received. Today, in these last few weeks, we have received some, some gifts of love. We've received the gift of those who, who have joined with us in membership. We've received the gifts of those who have followed, stepped out in faith, not knowing where that faith will lead them, but willing to say, God, you have called, and God, I will follow. And as we receive those gifts, and, and, and we, we are challenged by them, and pushed by them, and comforted by them, I think it's now time for us as a church to hear that deep and wide calling from God. The same God who fashioned and formed you. The same God who called and, excuse me, who knows and, and consecrates you. That is the God who is calling out to you today. And it's such a simple message. Love. Take the love that is in your heart already and share that with others. For through that, God's message comes. Take the love that God has given you and give it away. Let us pray. Lord Christ, may we today follow after you in the ministry of love. May we, O oh God, receive the gift of your word, that very same word of love, and be conduits of that love to those who are so desperate around us to receive it. O oh God, we hear the message, and it doesn't matter what it is. May you use us this day. As we sing our final song, I'm going to, give one more invitation. And that if God is speaking out to your life today, calling to mind something in your life that God has given you, God would share, use you to share that. If you are hearing that voice today, I invite you to come and, and find a place to pray in a prayer of consecration. Will you join me standing as we sing?